Church, how are you today? Happy Father's Day to you. In a little while, uh, we are going to sit down and enjoy a nice lunch, steaks together. So I hope you'll be able to stay uh, and join us in a little bit here. We're continuing this series that we're calling Everyone Always. And basically, we're asking this question. Are there some always statements that we would use always in every relationship that we encounter, in every connection with people Is there things and how we should interact that we would say these always apply? And last week we said we should respect people, always, everyone, always, we should respect. And we're going to continue that that topic this morning uh, as we look at another always statement. Uh, One day a man approached Jesus. He's an expert in the law, all right? So he knows it, back of his hand, he's got it memorized, actually. So he's an expert. He asked Jesus this question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you would contextualize what he's asking, he's asking Jesus this, how do I live in step and in tune with God today and forever? It's an important question, all right? Don't skip past it. I think it's a question if you've never asked of yourself, you should ask that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life, to be in step and in tune with God today and forever. So he's asking Jesus this question. It's not a bad question at all here. And so Jesus, he he knows the guy's an expert in the law. So he flips this back on on the guy and he says this, "Uh, you know the law, you know the law as good as anyone. How do you interpret the law? What does the law say? And here's how the expert in the law replied. It's to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if you've been in the church world long enough, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that passage. I've read that many times. I've heard messages on that. Here's a couple things you need to know, though. Here's one. When he says the expert, love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, he is actually quoting the beginning of the entire law that we find in the first five books of the Bible. So he's actually quoting that. He's got it memorized. He probably could have just kept going and rattling on if he wanted But this second phrase, to love your neighbor as yourself, this is interesting here. Nowhere in the Old Testament law do we find love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, combined with love your neighbor as yourself. This guy is telling Jesus, here's here's how I interpret the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, right? That's exactly what it says in print there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't combined. What's happening here? He obviously has been hearing Jesus because Jesus was asked before this. He said, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment we should follow? What's the number one thing? Like in your house, your kids want to know, what is the number one thing that mom and dad have said that we better do if we disobey that one, we're in big, big trouble, right? What's the number one thing? And Jesus replies, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, just like they would have known from the law, And Jesus immediately goes, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like Jesus is actually combining this to say, this is what the law is all about. You love God and you love others. You love your neighbors is the the phrase Jesus puts it. So this guy has been listening. He understands what Jesus has been teaching. And so he says, well, love Lord God with all your heart, soul, and might. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've been teaching that one, right, Jesus? Yeah. And so The test that this expert wants to give Jesus is this. He says, well, who's my neighbor? Define neighbor for me, Jesus. 
The second thing you need to know then is that every Jewish person at this time would have understood the concept of neighbor to mean family. It was a synonymous term. So they would have looked at it this way. Twelve tribes of Israel, you might be familiar with those from the Old Testament. Much of the Old Testament is about that story of the twelve tribes. It's who's in your tribe? Like, who's like you? Who's your people, right? Who looks like you? Who talks like you? This would have been your neighbor. This would have been the understanding of your family, your clan, your group. So he's saying now, now, Jesus, who do you say is my neighbor? Now, Jesus answers with with what I think is the most brilliant story he ever shares. He answers this way. He says, okay, there's a guy out on the road, and he goes walking, and robbers come across, and they beat him. They take all his stuff and money, and they leave him for dead. And then these two religious leaders come by, and they step past him because they are on their way to do their religious duties and must have felt too busy. Now, the expert in the law listening to the story, I wonder if he's thinking next Jesus is going to introduce the hero, and maybe the hero comes from my tribe, you know, my clan. But Jesus does introduce a hero. It is not from his tribe. In fact, it's not from any of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Jesus actually ventures out to say this is from one of the group. It comes from another spectrum, right? It comes from their most despised, most hated group, the Samaritans. We talked about them last week. The Jews could not stand the Samaritans. Hate, it may be not even the strong enough word to describe it. In fact, the term they would use to add to Samaritan was actually a racist term. That's how they would speak of Samaritans. So you might know the story of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus introduces the hero, a Samaritan, who comes along, he picks this guy up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, you know, bandages him, cleans him up. He floats the bill. He leaves and says, hey, anything that's incurred, any cost, I'll come back and pay it. Just let this guy get well. That's the hero of the story. So Jesus then looks at this expert and he says, who do you think was a neighbor? Well, who do you think he's going to say at this point, right? He says, more correctly, who do you think loved like a neighbor? Expert in the law says the one that showed mercy. And Jesus says, correct, go and do likewise. In a culture where like this idea of neighbor was so narrow, it was so small, so focused on a few, Jesus is flinging open the doors of who a neighbor really is. He's saying this, it's the person you can't stand. Like, it's the person who who doesn't like you. It's the person who's your rival. It's the person who has wounded you. That's your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Jesus is saying, everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. And so what Jesus is teaching here is to love everyone always. That's what he wants us to know, to love everyone always. And you say, this is hard, Right? And this is a hard thing. Any of you out there say, I've got some people in my life are, who are not easy to love. Like, I just, I don't love them. I, they're not easy to love. I, try, I don't even want to be around them, you know. Maybe if I could love them but not be around them, you know, like maybe a remote kind of love thing, then I could handle the love side of it as long as I don't need to be near them or see them or uh, be around what they do. Whatever it is, it's hard. 
In fact, when we turn on shows or news or read things on the internet or Facebook or those type of things, I mean, we're constantly bombarded with this negativity. We're constantly bombarded with things that might even be a front to us or that offend us. And it's so easy. It's like it's pushing us back to this narrow view of what a neighbor actually is. And I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus is just telling you. He's whispering to you, come on, man, trust me. Just trust me that this love your neighbor thing actually works. It actually works. It's a big deal here. And so uh, you may not know this, or maybe you already do, that there's these two compellers that will drive us, that will push us. Love and fear. Love and fear. Have you ever lived in fear? Maybe for a few months you just kind of said, man, I have just been living out of fear. Or maybe at the end of a few months you're like, you know, I've really been... I've really been living with this abundance of love flowing out of me. I don't even understand it. Love and fear are these propellers to our life. I remember a time uh, in high school, or excuse me, college. I was my senior year of college, and uh, I was doing a practicum for my ministry class. And these two youth pastors came, and they presented about what God was doing in their youth ministries. Uh, we didn't know this to the end of class, but then the professor said, your assignment in this class is that you would attach yourself to one of these two ministries and then you would go on whatever basis the youth pastor would want you to go. And so one of these youth ministers was from Pasadena, California, and kind of the hills of Pasadena. Now, if you're familiar with the hills of Pasadena, this is a very affluent area. Um, and, and so you had this large church. It was uh, pretty impressive. I mean, really getting it done, right? Large youth group and in a in pretty impressive and fluent neighborhood. And before I knew it, like 11 of my classmates had signed up to go be at this church in Pasadena. Did I tell you that there was only 12 in the classroom at the time? That left one, right? Now, I don't know if it was just out of, man, I feel bad for this other guy, this other youth pastor, um, but he was from South Central Los Angeles. Now, if you grow up like where I grew up, in the white suburbs of the desert, you don't make a lot of trips to South Central. In fact, you're kind of conditioned, I'm ashamed to say, that you don't go to South Central Los Angeles. This other youth pastor was from South Central. Friday night youth. In fact, what he said to us in his presentation is, man, we're working really hard to get like a youth service going, but we just haven't got that far. Most nights we just throw out a basketball and we just hang out. But somehow at the end of the day, 11 are going up here and Tom Raven is going this way to South Central. So I showed up the first Friday night, and uh, as you might expect, I mean, I, I'm extreme minority in the room, maybe one or two uh, white folks in there. Um, and I'm telling you, from where I grew up, this is my first time, I'm ashamed to say like there was this almost fear that was like, I'm a little nervous. You know, what, you know am I going to be accepted, received? You know, what, what, what is going to happen this night? Sure enough, just like he said, basketball was going on in the rec center. Now, I, I had never played basketball in my life um, up till I got to college, and God opened up this door in our transitioning urban area, basketball court on every different corner. So that was the avenue to reach kids. So we play a lot of basketball. And I was fairly athletic then, so at least I can move around the basketball court and kind of somewhat look like a player until the ball got in my hands. So that <laughs> night, um, I just said, you know, you sign up on the board, and I just I got into a game. So the very first time, I always tried to pride myself on defense because I didn't know what to do with the ball. So I just thought, well, I'll 
defend the ball, I guess. Or, um, so I got down and like, you know, ready stance and you do the check, you know, you get the ball, you throw it to them and check, you know, now you're ready to go. And the guy fakes a pass this way and they puts it right off my forehead. <laughs> and every uh, stereotype fear I had just came rushing in at that moment. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen here? Very soon uh, that night, they would have this kind of, uh, there's always somebody really loud that becomes the announcer, you know, um, and I was White Raven, uh, was my nickname, if you know, my last name is Tom Raven, so I said, hey, man, Ravens are black, you know, but they said, no, you're White Raven, you're White Raven, so, but I played basketball that night. Um, I'd like to say I held my own, but I doubt that was the case that night. Um, I ran hard up and down the court, so um, sometimes I touched the ball for a second, so but then I found myself, I left that night, and here's the issue, is most people that go check it out one, one night, especially coming from my context, they, they don't go back, even if they're well-intent. But I went back next Friday night, and I played a little bit more basketball, or I did a little bit more court running. And then I went back the next week and the next week, and most of the entire senior year, you know, I went there. Can I tell you, those guys, they didn't, they didn't stay basketball players, in my mind, they, they became friends. There, they, there was an avenue. that The guy that threw the ball off my head, guys, he was the pastor. I didn't know that. He was one of the pastors, you know? <laughs> but as we got connected, the Lord just opened up good relationships. Good. Uh, I'd like to say, I went back and, and I thought, I'm White Raven at, at, his, at my campus, my college campus. And they're like, what? Anyway. So it didn't stick. It didn't stick. But... But down there, there was, there was this connection. Listen, this is the beauty of love. The, be- the beauty of love is that it will drive out fear if you allow it to. It will drive it out if you'll allow it. Like if you walk in, whatever fears, whatever stereotypes, whatever you have, love will replace those. That is what Jesus is teaching here. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to tell you what love is, what love's not, and what love does. And so if you've got your sermon notes, pull those out. I want to walk through these lists. Um, And if you didn't get one and you'd like one, Pastor Anson's uh, back there, um, and he'd be happy to to bring you one. And we're going to go through it. Now, um, let me give you a little word of caution. I'm going to go through this list, and it's going to feel like I'm kind of blitzing through some of this list. Um, Two reasons. One, I really want to spend time letting you know why Jesus says this is so important. So I want to have enough time for that. Uh, Two, if I were to go slowly one by one through all of this, um, those steaks would be long done and cold, right? They'd all be in in Ziploc baggies for you to take home. I know you don't want to do that. So let me just work through this list for you this, this morning. And then I want to tell you, and I want to kind of camp out for a second to say how incredibly important this is. And then I want to pray a very specific directed prayer for you and myself this morning. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Um, now, what we've done is we've taken this passage and we've kind of scrunched it down and said, this is only for weddings. We're going to read this at weddings. You know, we're not going to read this anywhere else. Um, Paul was not conducting a wedding when he wrote this, all right? Paul is writing to the Christians at Corinth, and he is encouraging them and challenging them in what love really does. Here's what he says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never 
fails. So what is love? Paul says love's two things. Love is patient and love is kind. Let's look at this word patient for just a, a moment. You know what patient is? Well, how many of you might know that uh, Hussein Bolt is the fastest man alive in the 100 and the 200 meters, right? I mean, super fast. Like, I remember running that in high school and thinking I was fast, and yet I was about three seconds off. That's a big time in a 100-meter race. A few years ago, he was running in a, in a race, and they were down in their starting stance, and uh, the starter got in position, and somebody jumped, went a little bit early. Then the gun went off, then everybody went, right? And the announcer said, whoa, 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 everybody. Somebody has false started back to the starting line. And you can see this on the, the YouTube video of this race. Bolt immediately takes his jersey off, puts his face into it, because he knows he's the one, that he jumped. And he can't advance. He's disqualified for the false start. This teaches us about patience. Patience is simply the art of knowing how to wait for it. How to wait. Like how to trust God to wait in his timing. How to learn more from God to get wiser to the point where we can discern when is right and when is wrong. In our relationships, patience is so incredibly important. When we wait, we don't jump. Like, like when we immediately think we're wronged, we maybe don't jump at a response. Patience would discern the situation. Patience wouldn't jump and manipulate so we get somebody to do something they're not ready to do. It's patient. It waits. It discerns. How patient are you? Like, just check your driving, you know, and tell me, how patient are you, right? We struggle, don't we? How patient are you in relationships, as well. In a relationship, uh, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or dating or parent to, to child, there's always one person setting the pace, and it usually is the person going slower. How patient are you in it? Second thing Paul says is love is kind. Well, what's kindness? It's simply this. Kindness is an abundance that meets a need. Like, it's an abundance that sees this deficiency, and it actually begins to lift it up. So, like, you see somebody who's uh, maybe they're down or, or, you know, they're just alone or, or lonely, and you know, if I just spoke a word to them, if I encouraged them, or maybe if I just spent the time to go talk to them, I would be lifting them up. Look, out of the abundance of your time and words, you can lift someone up. Or, or maybe it's that God has blessed you with different resources, uh, finances, uh, abilities, skills, things like that. And you see somebody who might be in need, and you say, I'm going to meet that need out of the abundance of what God has done for me. And you help lift that person's up uh, that when you give. Scholars have wrestled with this. Why would Paul just say these two things that love, uh, love is? Only two things he says, patience and kind. One scholar, Jordan, uh, Gordon Fee, says this way. It's the passive and active response of our good God. Listen, our God will never force himself on you. He waits. He's patient. He loves you dearly. He's seeking you. He's drawing you near to him. He's putting people in your life that love him and they want to testify to you on how good God is, but he'll never force himself on you. Like if you're new today and you're, or maybe you're in here and like you would say, I don't have a walk with the Lord yet. Just know God loves you enough to, to be patient 
with you. But when that moment of faith comes, when that moment comes where you're ready to say yes to God, whether it's saying, yes, Jesus, come into my life, be the Lord of my life, or, or whether it's just saying yes to some area God is working on you on, then God's overriding sense of kindness and grace will just flood in and meet you, and it will lift you up. That's the good news, folks. That's what God does. That's what his love does for us. It's patient and it's kind. So that's what love is. Uh, then Paul says, let me tell you what love isn't. This is a big list, all right? Let's jump through it. it first thing is love isn't envious. You know what envy is? Envy is a little bit different than covet. Like yesterday I was coveting my neighbor's mower because mine's down, and I was on here, his, mowing my yard. And it's fast, and it's zero turn, right? And I just felt like a king riding around in my yard. I loved it so much I went right over to his yard, and I mowed his yard as well. So there was some coveting going on uh, on his, right? That's not envy, though. You know what envy is? Envy is when you look at what your neighbor has, and there's just this boiling of frustration within you. Envy is when you can't celebrate what somebody has. You have this boiling desire for them to not even have it because you don't have it. That's different. Love doesn't do that is what Paul's saying. A present day phrase for you is when we kind of mutter, must be nice. You ever said that? You know, their vacation photos, must be nice. You know, it'd be nice to have that kind of money, I guess, if you have that, you know. That's how we say it. Or they get, show up in a new car, you know, must be nice. You know, have that. Must be nice. That is this form of envy. It's not celebrating. It's not even just coveting. It's not even just saying, man, I would really like to go on a vacation too. It's almost like saying, I don't, they shouldn't be able to go. I, I hope it rains at Disney all week. You know, it, that's this envy, envy. Paul says that's not love. He says, love's not boastful. I was thinking boastful, like prideful or, you know, like arrogant, like we go around saying, oh, I'm the best. No, but boastful is more, more specifically this. It's saying the world parade revolves around you. Like it's about you. It's like Macy's parade. You kick Santa out of the seat. You get up in it and say, you know, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. You know, that's what boastfulness does. You start to interpret things as if you are a main character and God is a supporting character in your life. That's what boastful is. And when we do that, it is so hard to really love and accept and receive other people. We start to actually see people as here, beneath us. And sometimes, in, in, in worse situations, they're there to serve us. Paul says that's not love either. And Paul says love isn't prideful. You see those Halloween costumes that, you know, like you put them on and you push a little button and a fan just blows up. You know, those kids walking around. Those things, I think they're awesome. So I didn't even know they existed until after Halloween this year. I might be in one. Oh, that's pride. Like that is a perfect picture of pride. That's when you puff yourself up and you make yourself more grand than you really are. That You embellish the story about yourself, the story about your life to be something greater than it actually is. Paul says that's not love. Love's not dishonorable. Last week we talked about it. Better said, love is not disrespectful that we respect everyone always. Like when we walk, what we walked through last Sunday is we said that we respect everyone because every single person you've ever laid eyes on is created in the image of God. And so you respect them. You don't disrespect the image of God. And love doesn't do that. Love isn't self-seeking. 
It, it means the, the New Testament says that we seek first the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've not figured out a way yet to seek first the kingdom of God and to seek first the kingdom of Tom Raven. I just I haven't figured out how those things go together. But I know this. If I seek the kingdom of Tom Raven, I often miss God entirely. But when I seek God first, God reorients and redirects the kingdom of Tom Raven to come under his umbrella. And it's so much better. And so love does the same thing. It's not self-seeking. It actually looks to someone else, like Philippians chapter 2 says, to other people's needs as greater than ours. Love isn't easily angered. Oh boy, here we go. Easily angered here. The word anger, it's a pretty cool word in the Greek. It deals with knives, which are not very good to have around if, you're, if you get too angry, right? But it deals with knives and sharpeners. So if you can imagine that picture of a knife and a sharpener, you know, and you're sharpening the blade of the knife, and that's the concept of anger, that you're actually, this emotion of fear is being sharpened to a point of attack. That's what, that's what being easily angered means, I mean, you're allowing yourself to get so sharp and you are ready to attack. Like, I sit with couples every once in a while, and like, it, it doesn't take anything. I might kind of snap my fingers like that, and they're just, you know, at each other with such anger, right? But then at the end of it, they say, oh, but we love each other. We just want to work this out, you know? I'm like, that's not love. That's not what love does. I, I believe you're deeply emotionally attached, but love is not easily angered. And then he says, love isn't a scorekeeper. Sometimes when I sit with couples, I'll ask them, tell me about your marriage, and they'll tell me. I'll say, hey, tell me when your marriage is going good. And you know what they'll say? Oh, that's good, when they're doing this, 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 and that. <laughs> All right, well, tell me when it's going bad. Oh, that's easy, when they're not doing this, 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 and that, right? You know what that is? That's a scoreboard. That's what we call that. It's a scoreboard. I mean, that's what you're doing is you're keeping score. And our relationship is so easy to let our relationships be this, where we're just keeping score. Oh, he did that. All right, that's one point. Oh, didn't do that. That's a negative two in the negative now. All right, got a chance to earn three points. No, he didn't do it. Negative four, you know. And we actually keep track of our relationships that way. I mean, can you imagine what's the result? That if they're in the positive, then I will give of myself, right? This will stay good. If they're in the negative, I'm done done with you, right? I'm moving on. And Paul is saying love doesn't do that. It's not a scorekeeper. And lastly, he says it doesn't delight in evil. You know what evil is? A corrupted good. Like we take these things that in and of themselves are either neutral or, or they're even good, and we manipulate them for our own purposes. Take them out of God's context. Use them the way we'd like. And there's so many people that actually, we have got to a point where we delight in this. We enjoy this whether it's power, sex, money, anything, maybe not evil in themselves, but taken out of God's context can be abusive. And Paul is saying none of these things are love. They're not characteristics of love at all. So here's a question. What does love actually do then? Here's what he says love does. First thing is it rejoices in truth. That means it celebrates truth all the time. Anytime somebody interacts with truth or transforming power in their life, we celebrate it. Here's what we do sometimes is somebody makes a great step forward in their life. They interact with truth and we say, eh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll sit back and we'll watch. If it pans out, then, you know, I'll be the first to say I was wrong. But if it doesn't, you know, told you so. 
But he says love rejoices in that, rejoices when truth is met. He says love always protects. The original language, this is a concept protect like, like a roof of a house where you come into the house. You know, the weather's bad, lightning or hail or whatever, you would come under the roof, Right? That's what he's talking about here. Like when you see somebody who's hurting or somebody who's alone, you actually welcome them in. That's this concept of protecting. Or this word hospitality, you're familiar with that? We think, oh, that's the person, they're in the back. They're making the meal right now for you. That's hospitality. Has no connection with that in the Bible. The Bible, it's simply welcoming the stranger in. Welcoming a stranger. Like love actually says, oh, are you new here? Oh, do you look disconnected? Are you on the fringe? I will welcome you in. Oh, I don't know your name. I will come up and say, hey, my name's Tom. I don't think I know you. That's what love does. That's part of the protection of love, to draw people and welcome people in. He says, love always trusts. Always trusts. Some of us who have been burned a little bit on trust in our life, we've gotten into the pattern where we're so slow, just a little nugget here and a little nugget here and a little nugget here, and you actually know God is propelling you just give yourself to this relationship or this connection or, you know, receive them in, or just give to them or help them or bless them. Even if it comes back, uh, you know, comes back where they don't use the blessing the way you hoped. Just trust me in that. I look at this and I go, wow, the cross is this representation. Like Jesus went all in for us, full blown. And for years, in your life, my life, for years, we might have rejected Jesus and said, nah, I'm not interested, Jesus. Don't have any interest in being a Christian or following you. I don't care what you did on the cross, you know, if that's even true. You know, that would have been our, our thought. But that doesn't change that Jesus went all in, trusting that what he had to offer would be of such great benefit. That's an invitation of love to go all in for God's children now or go all in for those that God is seeking he says, love always hopes. What is hope? It's a vision of the future. It's looking to the future and saying, that can be. That can be. When I was 18, finished high school. When I was 22, I graduated from college. When I was 27, I finished seminary. Those were all years I would mark as incredible years of vision for me. Because I was looking forward and saying, man, there's this great path out in front of me. God has just brought me through this season of schooling and I'm ready. Let's go. Let's, you know, let's get out there. But you know, it's so easy. You get 40, 50, 60 or so, and you start to lose that vision or lose that hope. Love is a reminder of that, to remind and love who you are, who God has created, and there's this wonderful future. This past week, I met with a man who was, who was just crying out, sharing about his life and all these things that he just felt like he had done and he had blown it and he had nobody and these type of things. But he kept saying in the course of the meeting, and I'm 60 years old and I'm 60 years old now. And, I'm, and I said to him after we talking for a while, you've got 25, 30, who knows how long, incredible years to live out who God has designed you to be and what impact you could still have on your family and on those around you. There's great hope and vision still there. That's what love does. And when we have this hope, love perseveres because we believe in that vision. We believe in that hope so we can say, I'm gonna ride it out. Doesn't look good right now, but I'm gonna ride it out. Love perseveres, keeps going. Joe Donjo, a pastor, once said it this way, love helps the other person thrive to become what God intended them to be. 
perseveres. And when you have that hope and you're persevering, then we find that love really never fails. It never really fails. That's where that hope leads us. This is what love is. It's what love isn't. And this is what love does. Now, what I want to do in our remaining time is I want to share with you why. Who cares? Why does this really matter to us, especially as believers? Listen, if you're, um, if you're somebody who would say, look, I, I'm not a believer. I'm kind of checking this stuff out, and it's intriguing, but um, yeah, I don't know if I'm ready to jump into it like you guys have. Then I would say, hey, th- this love thing would be really valuable for your life, but I understand your source, the source in God and in Christ, may not be there. But believers, can I just say for you for a second, can I just challenge you? Every once in a while, I run into somebody who speaks or acts in a way that doesn't show love at all. Can I just tell you, believers, our greatest witness is not going to be your sermon. It's not going to be your worship song that you sing or you wrote. It's not going to be the number of Bible studies. Your greatest witness is going to be how you love other people. In fact, your greatest uh, repulsion of the face Faith will be your lack of love for other people. The greatest avenue for doors to open to be able to share the name of Christ with your friends or family will be through the way you love them. The greatest way to slam the door shut will be in the way you don't love them. That is why this is so incredibly important. That is why that chapter 13, those things that we just listed, are so vital And here's how Paul says it. Let me just blow your mind for just a second. Paul says at the very end of this chapter, right? He says, look, now there's three, these three things remain. Hope, or excuse me, faith. And he's saying your faith in God, your faith in who God is and what he did through his son on the cross, that remains. Your hope, your hope of eternity, life with God, that remains. And love, what does he mean by love? He just wrote about it. He just wrote about it in this chapter. Everything we just listed, that remains. So get this right. He says, look, your relationship with God, your faith in your relationship with God, you know, what God has to offer in that relationship, faith and hope, those two things remain, but love remains also. And then he says this, but the greatest of these is what? Say it with me. You know it. Love. Like Paul is actually suggesting greater than your relationship with God, your vertical relationship of interacting with him. And I hope you do. Like, I hope you get in his word every day and want to dig around and learn. And I hope you want to be in church so you can grow and be challenged in your faith. But Paul is saying greater than even that is your love for other people. He's basically saying, look, what does this really matter If this does not become this, what does it really matter? And so he says the greatest of these is love. Get out there and love people the way this passage said. Here's where we get scared. Here's where the fear comes in. We like to say, but if if I'm loving them, I'm afraid everybody will think I'm condoning what everybody's doing out there. Jesus didn't worry about that. Paul didn't worry about that. They just simply went out and loved people. It was clear they didn't condone every way out there, everything that was being done, every behavior out there. It was clear. But their love was there. 
Church, I think we can do the same. I think you can go out and you can love and not condone. But man, that love's got to ring loud, loud and strong. Why does Paul so boldly say this? I mean, did Paul just get off track here? Did his, did his theologies just go a certain way? No, not at all. He's actually sharing exactly what Jesus himself shared. John chapter 13, the last piece in your notes this morning. Jesus with his disciples, he said, look, a new command I give you. Love one another. Love. As I, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my, my disciples if you love one another. Not everybody will know this if you're in four Bible studies or, you know, if you hit Hillsong concert Saturday night. All those things are fine. He says they'll know by your love. How does your love carry out? What do you do? So I want to tell you this morning, church, the charge and the challenge in what we're talking about is for you to go out and love everyone always. Everyone. And there'll be somebody that tests you on it probably as soon as this afternoon. Love everyone. So here's what I want to do. I said I want to have a directed prayer. So I want you to think for a second, and then I'll lead us in prayer. I want you to think of that person that you're like, man, they're so hard to love. Like some of you got to search your mind a little bit because you're so loving and, you know, but some of you are like, I got it. In fact, I got, I got five, Tom. You want, you want all five? So like some of you, you got it right away. Here's a directed prayer. I want to pray now for two things, that God would flood you with just, Love for that person. It, doesn't, it won't even make sense. I'm going to ask him that he'll just flood. Like, you know, like a, a family that has a baby. They've never seen this baby before, but in an instant, snap of the finger, baby's out, and they love that thing like crazy, right? Like, I'm going to actually pray that God would fill you up with love for that person. And then the second one is on you. And that would be that you would think of what is the first step to go love that person. What does it look like? And then go do it. Whatever it is, go do it this week. Go do it, that first step. Maybe they'll receive that and go, hey, man, thanks so much. I don't even know where we went wrong. Or maybe they'll be like, whatever, get out of here. I don't know. But your job is to extend that first step of love. So that's how I'm going to pray. You got the name or thought in your head, right? Yeah, could be somebody even here. Yeah, I don't know. It may very well be somebody sitting here and saying, it's me. I just know I'm hard to love. I make it hard for people to love me the way I act or behave or speak or think. Whatever. I want to direct my prayer for you. So would you bow? Let's pray. So Father, I, I'm, I'm, I know that there's names floating around in people's heads right now. There's faces. And, and for some of them, they went so far to actually recap the events in their head of what caused them to be at this place with this person. Maybe there was an incident. Or Lord, maybe it's just that that, just per, that person is just so annoying. Maybe they've been offensive. I don't know, Lord. But this is what I'm going to ask, Lord. And I don't know, it's a bold ask of you, Lord. But I'm going to ask it, Lord, that you would just right now, would you just supernaturally just empower us with love? Would you just like flush it down right on us right now, Lord? Would we feel ourselves choosing love for that person, choosing to love them. Lord, we don't condone. There could be behavior that we're like, that is so far out of whack, but I'm going to love them. 
Lord, fill us with it. Fill us. And then, Lord, the second thing. It might even be the harder thing, Lord. I want to pray right now that a first step pops into the head of every single person here. What is that first step? What is it to go and say, I'm going to love you like this? As we think through the list of what Paul just said, I'm going to do this for that person. Or I'm going to quit doing this one thing. Whatever it is. When that first step is locked in, Lord, would you now empower us to go live it out? Lord, would it be like Abraham where you told him, get up and go and I'll show you where you're going. Power along the way. Get up and go do this step and trust that God will empower you in the action. Lord, and I'm praying just awesome testimonies. I'm praying for a revitalized relationship, for reconciliation all throughout this room, all throughout relationships that are represented here. Lord, I'm praying even more so for avenues and doors that would open that we might be able to share the hope we have in you, that someone would come to know you as their Lord and Savior because we chose to put this love into action, that we would love everyone always. We'll trust you, Lord. It may be easy for some. It may be incredibly hard for others. But we'll trust you. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I understand.